Hello to everyone tuning into the Highly Optimized Podcast today. My name is Ryan Sprague, and throughout this podcast, I will be showcasing individuals who are living a life beat to their own drum, sharing their stories, and revealing their valuable information for you listeners on how you can effectively take life into your own control, what steps to take to create your own path, and how to maximize your results in manifesting your dreams in this reality. Stopping by today to hang with us is a woman who is no stranger to the term pirate. She holds a Master's of Arts from the King's College in London, is a force in the realms of speaking and communications, and is the co-author of Be More Pirate, a book dedicated to sharing the truth behind the pirates of the past, their way of living, and the opportunity we all have to learn from their innovative and forward-thinking approach to life. So, please help me in welcoming Alex Bacher to the show. What's up, Alex? Hey, lovely to be here. Yeah, really good to have you here. And um, I, of course, read Be More Pirate as part of Enlifted. Uh, Mark's been preaching it for quite some time. And it changed my life. You know, uh, it was at a very transformational time in my life where I was starting to question a lot. And I've always been a type of questioner, let's say. You know, I like to ruffle some feathers here and there. And uh, partly this is why I do this show and the other show I do. And uh, so it was a really incredible uh, book for me to experience like, oh, these these ways I'm thinking are not new. They're actually like the way that, you know, freedom seekers have been thinking for a long time. Right. And that's evident in the book. And so I'd love it if you could share part of your journey of what, you know, really what got you into the subject of being a pirate and also what got you into literature, poetry, all the things that I saw when looking into your background that it seems you've been into for a long time. So I'd love to hear that. (laughs) Sure. Um, yeah. So my, I suppose my, if I'm to go back, way back, <laughs> um, I did originally study literature. I like storytelling. I like stories. I think, you know, I think it actually went back to school because I, I think I, I, my interest sits at the intersection of stories and communication and social change, whatever that might be, or, or let's call it, you know, the way that the the world works. And I think it was it was back in um, high school when I was. Um, starting to study literature from the First World War, I think it was, and also simultaneously studying the Vietnam War in, in my history classes. And I just, I had an amazing history teacher who was an amazing storyteller. And I remember thinking, I used to run to class almost to kind of get the next installment. We did a lot of American politics, actually. So, you know, we got Watergate and um, civil rights movement and everything. In fact, I don't know that much about British history. I know quite a lot about American history. <laughs> it's the opposite. Um, yeah, I, I know most about other countries and little about America. So we got that in common. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I, um, and I just thought, you know, it was because of the, particularly the World War One poetry that we studied, it was so affecting. I mean, it was, it's brutal in its detail of what the kind of trauma that happened as a result of those wars. And the UK is small and, we we went over to France and we we would tramp around the fields where all the battles were fought, and go and visit all the graveyards. And um, but it was the literature that made it real for me. And I just thought, this is how you're going to engage people in preventing more tragedy through art. Like it, it it's not going to happen just by telling people the statistics of this war and how many tanks they had and all that sort of thing. So I think I had that in the back of my mind always. And so I went to university and studied more literature. And, but I actually did, an, it was an American degree, um, comparative literature. So we, I kind of went on some, down some bizarre routes I would do. I did like Algerian literature, uh, Greek poetry, like modern Greek poetry as well, not old stuff. 
And where everyone else studies, typically studies Shakespeare and Dickens and all the classics, I didn't, I had no, I have no schooling in any of that. I just know some quite obscure texts, which I, I still have on my shelf. So, but that was a real education, you know, because it was really expanding my horizons. And I thought I like this, I like this unusual blend I'm getting. I, I'm really curious to know what's in the far corners of the world when it comes to art. Um, however, when I finished my degree, it was 2008 and it, we were just, you know, um, being chucked out of university into the financial crisis. So that was yep. a joy. And everyone was like, you know, you still- yeah. <laughs> 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 here you go. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, everyone always told me regardless, like you, you can't really get a very good job with a literature degree. And of course, I shouldn't have taken that face value, but I did because I didn't really know any different at the time. And so I I, uh, I stayed on at university for another year to do a master's because I thought that would help. And I switched subjects to international relations, so glo- global politics. And again, I was totally clueless about what I was doing. Um, I think a friend just suggested I do it. And she's like, you like politics, just do this. I thought, yeah, this will make me be taken seriously. And um, again, it was really accidental. I sat down with all the course options and I randomly selected some stuff that looked interesting without much thought. And I ended up in all the Middle East classes. Afterwards, people said to me, they were the most popular and oversubscribed courses. I don't know how you got both of them. But I was like, oh, <laughs> Divine <into> timing. <laughs> yeah, it was like perhaps, I don't know, some kind of accident. And anyway, I got really, really interested in it because we were still in the midst of the Iraq war and everything. And um, I have also have a family in Israel. So mm. it was fascinating to, to really in, investigate uh, that. And I look particularly at the Arab-Israeli conflict, obviously it's kind of, in the news at the moment yeah and so yeah <laughs> we're repeating things again <laughs> yeah, keep, keep on going around yeah. in circles. but it was you know just a very it was a real baptism of fire when it came to understanding conflict and, and systems like international systems what role does the UN play what what is economics you know economical economic social policy mm. that sort of thing and um I kind of had an inkling that I just didn't think that the textbooks we were reading were really getting it right. We were, you know, reading textbooks from the 1970s, trying to explain how the world was. Yeah. And I thought, this doesn't really fit with how I am experiencing the world, at least, and what I'm understanding from at least studying the countries I'm studying. Oddly, in a university environment, you're still not taught to challenge that much. You're taught to challenge, but not to the degree that you you really suggest that the core texts... <laughs> aren't correct yes so yeah (laughs) so I suppose then that was in the back of my mind and I went off and did a six-month trip around the Middle East to try and understand it from a more frontline perspective not that I really could because obviously I didn't speak the languages I just I was very naive and I just thought I'll just see what happens and much to my parents dismay um was like yes I'm gonna go (laughs) go and trek through Syria and Lebanon and and this was before the Syrian war as well so and it was it was an amazing, amazing experience, like so many wonderful people. Um, and I came back full of enthusiasm to try and change the world and contribute in some way. But I didn't really have any specialist skills at all either, other than sort of vague background in, in thinking I wanted to do communications and campaigning. I ended up in a NGO called Global Citizen, which was then called the Global Poverty Project. And I was very lucky because they were they're actually an amazing organization and were really forward thinking around campaigning. You know, their their whole 
the paradigm they were trying to shift was from um, to, to move away from poverty porn in terms of campaigning around poverty. Mm. So shifting us from sympathy to empathy yes. um, and even beyond that and, and explaining, you know, a- Africa is a hub of entrepreneurship in so many places. This idea that it's a sort of starving continent is, <laughs> is um, a very, very narrow view and, yeah. and it reinforces the sort of dependency model, which... The victim model, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then that's not the case at all. So they were very much about empowerment. And I didn't really know enough at that time to see how, how amazing that was. And But we created these short films and I was just, you know, helping to edit. And, and there was one that really stood out to me because his name came up again recently, a guy called Nick Dearden, who um, runs, at the time, ran something called the Jubilee Debt Campaign. And back, and now run, is part, I think, Global Justice Now is an NGO that he runs now. And he was talking about these things called vulture funds, which were private investment funds that could buy foreign debt off countries. And I just thought this was this was mind blowing to me that and and, and this this whole process was allowed to go through UK courts. Mm. So they were fighting against it. They were saying we shouldn't allow this. It's kind of immoral that you can buy the debt of, of a poor country and essentially hold them to ransom. And they do you know doing it privately. It's one thing. Another government doing it, but it showed me that the inequality was systemic. And, and deliberate rather than an accident or the fault of the people who were poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that changed a lot of my perspective on things. Although at the time, again, I didn't really know what to do about it. It felt overwhelming. I felt absolutely lost in a maze of what the hell can I do about any of this? And very, you know, very much probably stuck in a sort of white, white savior guilt cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, you know, actually, you know, making it all about you and like, what will I do? And, you know, who cares what I do, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that was um, probably the the ego and the vanities of being young. And um, not to say that I've, I've shed that in, in any respect necessarily, but I definitely matured in my outlook. Mm. And um, so, so that was the, the sort of background. Anyway, I ended up working for charities for a good seven, probably eight or nine years um, so sort of hopping from one charity to the other, try, trying to do something useful and, and pick up some some skills and understand where I could be useful. Ended up in a think tank for seven years. And that was when I'd say I went to sleep a bit mm. <laughs> because I just got into, you know, a, a sort of routine. There's, I, I became, I don't know, subsumed by just... I don't know, like normal, normal life. You know, yeah. I'd go to the pub, meet my friends, do the same again. And, you know, there's very much an impetus to save money, buy a house, all the usual milestones of life, mm-hmm. which I did. Um, but it wasn't, didn't really make me happy, to be honest. It just, I just had this sort of background noise of quiet misery. <laughs> Maybe that that's a little bit unfair, perhaps, and I wouldn't want to, it, it wasn't as conscious as that. It was just that I I felt a gnawing sense of I'm not fulfilling my potential and I've lost my sense of purpose mm. and I don't even really know the way back anymore. Yeah. And that, the thing is, I was there for a long time and then something snapped. Something just was like, I, oh, I, I, well, I'll tell you sort of what snapped. I, I, <laughs> actually got, <laughs> I got sick for a year. Um, uh. I had a year where I, I got a sort of undiagnosed um, stomach problem that was just not so serious that I had an, you know, had to be, had to really take that much time off work or anything, but it was just, again, just made me sort of uncomfortable and slightly miserable. Yeah. And I, I felt like I'd just gone so far off track that, that 
my you know my body was sort of responding to it in some respect and um I needed to find a way back and so that's when that that's kind of how I got to be more pirate in that I just I eventually just left well I took a sabbatical from my job and just thought I need time out I need to think and figure out what to do I left a relationship as well so there's personal upheaval and I just needed to find some quiet to hear myself Mm. properly and um I'd downloaded a chapter of Be More Pirate onto my book, onto my Kindle even. And I picked it up and, and tried to read the first few chapters, but I I just felt, I, I felt too burnt out to really engage with anything about social change. Um, and it was only after a couple of months of rest that I came back to it when I saw a job advert for a right-hand pirate. And I realized it was the guy who wrote the book. I At that point, I'd started to hear my intuition again. I'd started to realize that I wanted to do something meaningful. And I kept all the things that I'd been building up over the years, like I really still cared about. I hadn't, those desires hadn't gone away. Those, the significance of everything that I'd learned when I was younger was still, you know, in the back of my mind. And you had just had to regain a bit of strength to think about what I was going to do. And this was a perfect opportunity because it was asking for somebody to build a network and a movement out of Be More Pirate, of all the people who had responded to the ideas in the book which built on my skills from my previous job. And I guess, yeah, it was a lot of communications work in there as well, which I thought, and I, and I just felt that this would give me autonomy and flexibility that I hadn't had in a previous job. Cause it was very clear that Sam was like, you kind of do this and you don't really have to, you know, you don't have to really, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Yeah. I'm hoping you'll tell me what to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great, uh, that's a great job posting too. You know, right-hand pirate. I'm like, that is the best job uh, title I've ever heard. So <laughs> yeah, he was like, this is, this will be the best job in the universe. Yeah. Uh, he said. And, but I also felt like I had nothing to lose when I went into it. I just thought, yeah, I'm going to go in and I'm going to tell him exactly what I think about everything and what, how I think this should be done. And, and not hold back and not try to fit myself into whatever mold. You know, you know how it is when you, I don't know if you know particularly, but when you are applying for jobs, especially when you're younger, you start desperately trying to please them and, and tell them what they want to hear rather than telling them who you are. Yes. And that's what changed at that point for me. Mm, I love so. that. That's incredible. And what a journey too. And you know, really, I see so many aspects of the hero's journey in there, right? By Joseph Campbell, you know, like, like realizing at a certain point, like, okay, everything I was doing, I still love and I'm ready to like jump into all of it head first again. And, you know, one of the things that was really cool about your journey was the fact that your journey was really you becoming a little more pirate in and of itself. Right. And that's why, like, I imagine that when you found that job title and actually figured out what was going on there, like what the job actually was, it was very serendipitous, you know, and very synchronistic. And, you know, I'm curious as you got more onto that path of working with Sam and doing be more pirate, did more and more of those serendipitous synchronistic events start happening like over time? (laughs) All the time, (laughs) all the time happens. It happens to this day. And it's really interesting that you you, you say that because you're absolutely right. I remember picking up the book and thinking, "Be more pirate." I think I need to beat that. Yeah, I'm not even knowing what that even meant at the time. And you know, Sam confesses that he wrote the book for himself because yeah. he was like, "This is what I need. I need to break some of the rules of my life." And that's and that's why I'm writing it as a, a letter to myself, cloaked in this big metaphor. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that's been the case for us. That is the case for, for the both of us. We talk about it on a weekly basis, almost that we're trying to. We always try to live what we're talking about. 
continually, whether it's stepping into the uncertainty. You know, I think that Be More Pirate really is just a testing ground. That is the essence of being pirate. You put your money where your mouth is and you say, if I believe in these concepts about risk and being bolder and taking a bet on yourself, then I will be it and I will have to keep being it. And, and that was the essence of the job because I didn't know what the hell I was going into really. And I wasn't ready and I wasn't prepared. And I started public speaking well long before I was ready, but Sam trusted me. And we, we you know, we did sort of make it up as we went along but with a, a, a strong sense of our own feeling of purpose and what some concepts that were guiding us with it, like that we weren't going to be obsessed with metrics or, or the right, you know, I was, I was very much about building relationships, real relationships, not superficial ones with our community. I wanted to know who they were. I wanted to know what mattered to them. Um, otherwise, it was just another, you know, superfluous network newsletter list. Mm-hmm. So we do really try to live out that, um, the message of it all the time as much as possible. And, and, that, and that's what makes it, that's what allows you to teach it, right? Because how can you if you're not living it yourself? And I think that for me, the benefit and the relatability that I have to an audience is that I started off at zero, like many of them. So when you're feeling, I want to be pirate, this message speaks to me, but I'm not there. Then I know that. I know that feeling. And I know the steps you have to take to get there. And and that actually the the process of doing it is the best thing about it. It's not about arriving at pirate. Because <laughs> you can always do more. Just <laughs> arrive. <Yes. laughs> you know, even Sam would say that today he, you know, he launches a new project on uncertainty experts. He's start it's totally experimental. He's yet again taken a risk on himself mm. um, to do something that is far outside of his comfort zone. And and that's the what we learn. Actually, I was writing an article last week about um I don't know if this is is uh something that is prevalent in the US, but um, it was about the the founder of the cooperative movement. Mm. And in Be More Pirate, Sam mentions that cooperatives have a lot of parallels with pirate codes in that they're similar principles of democratic membership and economic participation. And the guy who founded the cooperative, well, started the cooperative movement in Wales, here in the UK, lived 20 miles from Captain, well, Henry Morgan, (sighs) one of the most famous pirates. So there's a sense that the ideas might have been transferred that way. There's no historical proof, but we like to make (laughs) make a case. Yeah, there's definitely correlation um, there. (laughs) Correlation, but that's not correlation. (laughs) (laughs) Strength in numbers, you know. (laughs) But I was writing this article about this, this guy, Robert Owen, and he was such a great example of an early pirate where he he used his own he he um so radical in like the 1800s in dark satanic mills britain where the con- working conditions in the industrial revolution were like horrendous you know kids at age of 5 would go go and work 12 hour days and he was one of the first people to say no to say oddly if you look at my i think my workforce will be more productive if they work less if we it things like giving them half an hour of education every day, putting creches into factories. Like this was so out of the box thinking for the time. And his mill was profitable, but the idea didn't catch on, which is interesting. Like people thought he was just too radical. Like it just couldn't work. Like how could this possibly be feasible? Mm-hmm. But it was one of, it, it, yeah, it, it's, I think that, A, that that's a, a battle we're still fighting, unbelievably. We're yes. still trying to humanize 100%. work. And everybody's burning out still. Mm-hmm. 
just we've just changed it to be slightly different we're still obsessed with you know making making everything economically like profitable ahead of people and you know this guy in the you know 1800s had the right idea and even though people saw him as a failure at the time he tried to start a cooperative i think in new hampshire actually and um it doesn't matter because he set his ambitions so high you know so far it didn't matter if it didn't happen in his lifetime you know he set the stage um, he so started yeah, the fire. I, that, that was in the top of my mind. No, so yeah. I love that. You know, <laughs> and there was so much cool stuff in there. Um, the number one was going back to you and Sam and, you know, really like you guys embodying these, these lessons, right? This way of living. And what you did, as I saw, right, was you defeated perfectionism, right? Because perfectionism says, I don't have enough knowledge yet. You know, uh, in your case, like I haven't public spoken enough. I don't know if I'm ready for this. And what you did is you annihilated that and went right by it, right? Which is, <laughs> in my opinion, like the hardest thing to do, right? Because especially if we want to get into the fact that we've been trained that our mind, aka our ego, our identity is who we are, Right. So instead of like the, a lot of the Eastern religions understanding and understanding that the mind is just an aspect of a more total being, we actually identify for the most part in, in Western societies with that being all of us, right? So then when we go try to go do things that we might be a white belt at, for instance, right? And I've had a lot of this happen with podcasting, with coaching, with everything. You know, you have that real big identity crisis because you're like, what if I fail at this, you know? And if we are able to move through that, that is where full bliss lies because really like what I've found is to quote Joseph Campbell again, like bliss is any emotion felt all the way through. So even fear, even, you know, scarcity, whatever, if you allow yourself to feel it totally and in totality, you can then move through it and, and see what's on the other side. And in my experience, and I imagine yours too, the other side, no matter how weird it might be is always worth it, you know, because the freedom you experience and really when you get into freedom, in my opinion, you're experiencing what is the most basic human principle, right? Which is what the pirates were doing. They were experiencing freedom. And one of the things that, you know, you guys were talking or you were talking about too with your community is, is having heart, right? Like having it be heart focused, like, no, this is a real community where we really embody this way of living and we're here to inspire other people. You know, it's, it's like keeping the fire going. You know, you were talking about that gentleman who, you know, spent his life, you know, that, that guy who was changing the way that factories were run and, you know, maybe it didn't catch on in his lifetime, but he did create that light for the rest of the world to benefit from years after, you know, his passing. And you were saying, you know, not a lot has changed. I agree with that. You know, really, we've changed out factories for office buildings. You know, it's same, same, but different, right? Because now we have fancy cars people can buy and and more like luxuries and comforts, right? Mm -hmm. And we've been tricked into believing that as a society that comfort is king rather than what we were talking about. Actually, discomfort is where you actually find the greatest peace on the other side of it. So it's a really interesting place we're in right now. You know, it leads over perfectly to what I wanted to get into, which was like, in this time, right? Like, look at what's happening in the world. Look at all the stuff that's going on. And, and personally, like, I look at it like a lot of people right now are doom and gloom, right? They're stuck in the victim mindset. I imagine you talked to Mark a lot about that too. You know, he, he, uh, he and I go deep on that. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people thinking that they're powerless, right? For one way or another. I like to think about it as, uh, you ever seen the movie Independence Day? It's like an old, yeah, yeah. And there's that part where they go to Area 51. And the scientist there is like, man, things are really exciting. You know, the spaceship's working again after years of not working. And the president gets all upset, like, what do you mean it's exciting? Well, that's what I feel like right now. Like, yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom, you know, quote unquote, in the world. 
But I'm so excited because things are changing. We're ruffling things. Like, you know, people are questioning things. And yes, it could look like chaos or it could actually look like the best thing ever. And so I'm curious for you, like, how important do you feel it is to have books like Be More Pirate that showcase this way of living in the modern time, right? As a guidebook to ascension, right? A guidebook to allow people to come into a new way of living, feel supported in doing so by the people around them, the tribe that you guys are building and the support that you're offering. How important do you feel that is? I, I think it's pretty important. <laughs> I would definitely wouldn't do otherwise. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, speaking to what you what you said, is that be more pirate and pirates and is a, is a kind of language to talk about it in, you know, everything that you've mentioned around freedom, agency, responsibility, not being a victim to your circumstances. All of that is encapsulated in Be More Pirate. It's just mm-hmm. talked about in a particular kind of language with a, a particular story, a metaphor, um, whether you want to take it metaphorically or literally. And that will appeal to certain people and not to others. Mm-hmm. And I'm very aware of the limitations that it won't be for everybody. And I don't mind that. Um, but for the people that it is a, is for, it's really for, you know, Absolutely. and that's what I love is that <laughs> the, the the people who are committed are committed, you yes. know, it's a pirate for life. And that's wonderful. And it, it, and it's, that is real solidarity. It's not like, oh, I join a membership organization for a couple of years and then I'm maybe I'll move on if I don't get enough benefits or this is a, a you know, it's a philosophy and ideology and idea you can't really kill. Yeah. So that's why I think the book and, and the way that it's framed is important. I don't think necessarily that the ideas of redistribution of power and breaking rules and rebellion are are brand new ideas per se. I think it, the, the the genius and creativity is in the framing and how accessible that is to people to rethink how they want to, um, you know, live, work, be. Yeah. Um, Cause we get, yeah, we get messages every single week from people saying this has changed, changed how we think about everything. And that's brilliant. That does, that's all it, you know, we want to do. And if we can support them any further along that, then, all the more for it. Um, so yeah, I think that in this particular time it is important and I'm, I'm the same as you. I, I enjoy the, <laughs> the disruption yes. because I've let go of the idea of, of there being external stability anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily think that there is, and I can understand how terrifying it is when everything changes and you're not ready for it or you hadn't even contemplated it yet. But every single person that I've seen go through you know even to some quite extreme degrees go through severe turbulence in their life have come out of it with completely different opportunities and so I yeah so I'm 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 with you I and I do sort of separate the idea of discomfort from anxiety Mm. um in my mind and there's a book that I read last year called playing big by a woman called Tara Moore, who actually mentions that the word for fear has two, there's two words for fear in Hebrew. Um, I can't remember them. I think it's Yira and Pahad. I don't know. That might be wrong. <laughs> but, um, it sounds go. legit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, she, and she talks about, you know, the, the, the kind of anxiety inducing fear that comes from the lizard brain that is like detecting, you know, the, the lion stalking you that you're supposed to, the, the very biological fear mm-hmm. that can become sort of rampant negative thoughts. And then she talks about the other fear, which is the, the fear you get when you have a feeling of, of expansion, when you know you're, you're, you've stepped into a space that is bigger than you 
and it's then for you to grow into it properly. Mm. And that's the fear I want to be everyone to be in. That was yes. the fear that I had, had at the public speaking. And, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have gone into that and done any of that had it not gone for Sam demonstrating or modeling absolute trust and sort of lack of fear. You know, he didn't ever show me that he was worried that I would mess up, that I would that I couldn't do it. And even if I said, I, I don't know if I'm ready, he said, it doesn't actually matter because you will be at some point and you'll the only way, <laughs> the only way is through. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. So, That's and what was remarkable to me about the relationship as well and, and having him as a, 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 a wasn't really my, ever that much of my boss, but compared to other managers I'd had in the past was, um, you know, he didn't go to university so in some way, he's not been schooled as much in the system, mm. which, is, which is what tends to fuel perfectionism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, what you said right there is, is really funny because, you know, essentially what I see school as, uh, especially grade school, and you can even surmise a lot of, you know, college and university as this too, is they're teaching you what to learn, not necessarily how to learn. And therefore, they're teaching you really to be a factory worker or an office building worker in the modern day. You know, that's one of the things that's always got me a little curious about school. And by curious, I mean, you know, I've definitely gone down that rabbit hole before and like, okay, like this is structuring the way of what to think, but it's never teaching you how. And so therefore, they're not really setting you up for success in terms of being a leader. They're setting you up for, okay, fall into place, find your comfort, right? And then stay there. One of the things I love about what you were saying a little while ago regarding not everyone, you know, necessarily loving the book, right? Like not being for everyone. That is the best gift that I believe humans can give one another is the gift of authenticity. Because if we try to people please, it brings us to our knees. That's like one of the things my buddy says all the time. And it's so true because I forget who said this offhand. It might be Walt Disney. I'm not sure. When you speak to everyone, you're heard by no one, right? And that is like the number one thing. And so what do we have going on right now in the world is a lot of like PC culture being afraid to offend people. And really, the gift of offending someone is that. It's a gift, right? Because if I get offended over something someone else, is, someone else says, I have a question to ask myself, right? If I am a sovereign being, which is why did I allow that person to upset me, right? Because it's nothing about what the person said. It's actually about how it landed with me. So I think that's where one of the areas where I'm excited to see a lot of people speaking out on that, you know, about how like, hey, we can have discussions and not agree on things and still go be friends, right? Like the politicizing of things, right? Which is basically making things into gangs, if you think about yeah. it, because it's like, oh, my team versus your team, you wear that color, I'm going to, you know, automatically assume, you know, all these things about you. You know, it's it's ruining the ability to have a good conversation, a good debate and challenge, right? Because a lot of times the way people grow, I know the way I've grown is having my beliefs challenged. You know, certain things I believed when I was 20, I don't believe now. And it wasn't and if I had decided like, no, I'm going to I'm going to die on this flag, you know, or on this hill, then I wouldn't have grown. Right. I love that. And, you know, really the analogy I always come to here and you were mentioning something that allowed me to think about this a second ago. You know, it's it's when you step into fear, right, and that into that like going outside of your comfort zone type fear that you allow yourself to grow. And it's just like going to the gym, right? We understand when you go to the gym, you break down muscle, it grows back stronger, right? But the process of breaking it down is pretty brutal if you think about it, right? You're like fatiguing muscle and like allowing it to have micro tears, like all these things are happening, but yet it becomes something beautiful. It's it's interesting to me 
that it took me so long to figure that out. And also it takes humans so long to figure that out. Right. But what a cool journey to go on. You know, I'm curious, this, this would be a great opportunity. I feel for you to discuss like the truth behind pirates, right? Because I was shocked when I read Be More Pirate at how many things, just like everything in history, were obviously written by the victor and not actually uh, representative of the truth behind what pirates were. I mean, they were so innovative. They were allowing gay marriage and they were allowing you know women to work and all these things. So I'd love if you could go into a little bit about that and uh, share with the listeners some of the things they may not be aware of when it comes to pirates. Yeah, Absolutely. Before I do, I just, no. I wanted to pick up on one thing. <laughs> Please go ahead. Yeah, I know. Um, but it, comes, it, it relates to what I'm going to say about pirates and how history, you know, creates a story that suits it based on who's written it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of having different and opposing views of people and having those conversations and how important that is, I always think, you know, if you keep curiosity as like a core value and like that's your your sort of guiding force, rather than always being so obsessed with what a person's opinion is the more far more interesting thing is how did they get there Mm. like that's what I always want to know like what were the like milestones of your life it's like you know how we talk about story work yes what were the milestones that got you to that framing that story that you're holding to be true now which could be you know if, if if unpicked could unravel could become not true so and I suppose well, it's an interesting one to think about how people think about pirates. Or what, where did your belief, where did your beliefs about pirates come from? I'll, I'll bet it's Walt Disney. <laughs> just ask yourself for a moment if that's yeah. a credible source for, <laughs> for, for examining, you know, what um, historical figures. It's interesting that most people don't actually know the difference between historical pirates and fictional pirates. So mm. I usually do a bit of a poll when I'm doing a talk or workshop and say, who comes to mind and people will often say Blackbeard who is was in fact a real pirate Edward Teach or Long John Silver who's fictional who's from Treasure Island maybe Captain Jack Sparrow an interesting one about Captain Jack Sparrow is that he you know we I think typically people think he's based on Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. but um, if you look at the descriptions of Calico Jack Rackham who was a famous pirate who was obsessed well he has he has clear characteristics shared with with Jack Sparrow not just the name, but an obsession with his own legacy, but not being a particularly great pirate <laughs> um, and flamboyant dresser, like known to be very, so that it's clear that they've modeled him on, on that. But yeah. what was interesting, and this is in a talk that I sort of, that I watched recently about female pirates was that um, Jack Rackham was in this sort of love triangle with Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who are these two female pirates. And interestingly, even in, the modern our modern times, Disney have managed to cut the females out of the story and only model their pirate on Jack Rackham in Pirates of the Caribbean. And that, when I looked at it like that, I thought, wow, you're still cutting the female. And they were, re- you know, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed were really important and they were fierce and they were revolutionary because they were women too. Yeah, they were badass. Um, so I just, yeah, so <laughs> more so than Jack. So that, yeah. was, that was interesting to me that, that there was no feature of that, um, even though they must have had the resources to draw on. But going back to what Pirates pioneered, I've gone off on a tangent. But no, I just no, thought, I love that tangent. It's so <laughs> important, though, because think about what's going on in society right now. It's, it's again, history repeating itself, right? Like, why are we leaving the badass women that have created the world we live in out of the world? Like, why? There's, there's literally no reason I can think of. It is really important. Like, 
because I'm sure that there's a, some Hollywood execs sat around a table and going, it's got to be a bloke. People will only respond to the pirate if he's a guy. Rather than seeing themselves as the people who have the opportunity to set a new precedent and, yes. and that they have the, the money, the resources, the storytelling firepower, the brand, everything, everything they could possibly want to create a new, you know, a new story. But they chose not to. I mean, they do, They, ha- you know, in fairness to Disney, they have in some other areas, but. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose the first point about pirates is that they were diverse. You know, there was yeah. there was women um, who were allowed on board pirate ships. Um, you know, it wasn't what, there weren't many par- female pirates that joined up because it was just risky, and they would have had a hard time actually signing up and getting on board. <laughs> but once they did, you know, nobody turned them down, and especially if they were highly skilled um, or you know had some some um, something to contribute. It was really about what you could bring to the table, which is how a workplace should be really like yes. taking everyone as an individual, recognizing that they're each important and have something to contribute and rather than, you know, socioeconomic status. So it was nice. So you got on a pirate ship, you kind of had a blank slate. You could be who you want, create your own name and, you know, be the badass person that you wanted to be perhaps and couldn't be back on land. I think, yeah. So once you are on your pirate crew, you got an equal vote on all the decisions that were made on board and that went into the pirate code. That was the sort of backbone of the pirate's success. It was a, a written document because there are historical records of them, although you'd be hanged if you were caught with a pirate code on you. So it was more like a, a spoken agreement amongst people. And every single article or you know rule in a pirate code was voted upon unanimously by the crew. So it was total democracy. It wasn't like, oh, the majority vote for this, so we'll go with it. It was everybody had to. And that was to prevent mutiny because... You know, they were yeah, they were just there out to prevent conflict amongst the group and, and survive at sea. They gave everyone equal pay as well, like roughly. So there's only a small discrepancy. Some of the more important roles, like the captain, the I think it was the the doctor, would get a bit more. Fair enough. If you took yeah. more risk, you could more. <laughs> it, was just, it was done on that basis. Yeah, the <laughs> offer was there. If you want to take more risk, you can do it and get more, but it's up to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But recognizing that pretty much everyone was taking a risk yeah, at some definitely. point, so therefore they would they would have equal. And 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 to that point, they gave people um, monetary compensation if they got injured, which again is radical, uh, given that in you know the U- USA you don't have. <laughs> that yeah not at all (laughs) (laughs) like if you get just accidentally sick you're not necessarily covered yeah that is mind-blowing yeah but pirates again were like well there's no incentive for people to put themselves in any danger if they know they're going to be left for dead yeah so we again there was there was a certain economic impetus with the pirates Mm -hmm. to make it work it wasn't all moral let's let's say that Mm -hmm. what else did they do they had yeah they did have same-sex marriage so they just accepted the reality of what what humanity is mm-hmm. <laughs> um, rather than trying to really suppress wild um, forward thinking ideas, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know you think about it now you're like, why would you deny what is? Um, it's so ridiculous. Yet we're the most advanced species, you know, we like to say that everywhere, you know? So <laughs> yeah. But then it's that, yeah, that's, that's the, um, the reality of being on board a, a small ship in the middle of the sea you don't really have a choice. You know, you've got to go, got to do whatever possible to make thing to make the group harmonious. So yeah, they they had the legal ceremony for same sex marriages that um, had an inheritance clause in. So if you if your partner died, you'd get their their treasure. Mm-hmm. So it was very it was quite sophisticated. And and I think that the other 
thing that was really important was the shared power aspect of between the captain and the quartermaster that you know they do say went on to influence the forms of government that we have now where we have a sort of an op- you know a two-party system in politics a kind of opposition to check check power Hmm. and that's what the quartermaster did to the captain they would be the voice of the crew who would look after punishment and money so that captain couldn't abuse it and they'd you know if if at any point and i think the yeah the the idea that you could vote out your leadership at any point in time if you could get enough votes and they were doing a bad job that was what created accountability so that you couldn't have this tyrannical captain with a mad idea sailing you off into the um sunset if you didn't want them to yeah i mean i'm sure it didn't work perfectly to be fair you know i've I've read some of the history books and it's it's clear there was discrepancies (laughs) in different pirates there were some that were really set on a sort of revolution some of them were really about the democracy and about a new way of working and living and and opposing the establishment and some of them were just really in it for themselves and for just making a bit of money and doing what they could so I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't want to smear over the history, but um, the fact that there were people doing that in the 1700s is still in- remarkable. Absolutely. And, you know, when teams come to you and they tell you, you, you they can't figure out a way to resolve the problems and you're like, well, if a group of uneducated, illiterate men in the 1700s could manage it. I think you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Find a path. <laughs> yeah. Go back to the drawing board, try again, you know. <laughs> But interestingly, on that point, like what actually is critical and what pirates had was the sense of jeopardy, of urgency that we don't have so much on a day to day. Like that's, you know, when we talked earlier about you and I being perhaps more okay with the uncertainty and recognizing that there is a level of uncertainty going on. And but if you're quite, you know, in, in a, you've really sort of set yourself up within comfort and you've, you've hit the milestones to the point where you are comfortable. Which is, which are, in fairness, is what we're told to aim for. Yeah. Be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so if you're there and then suddenly, you know, why? it's very hard to, to sort of change your mindset and think, well, we've got to change everything up. And so some of the um, people in our community quite deliberately almost simulate je- like a sense of jeopardy or urgency. Um, I've seen that happen. They've gone, you know, or they'll create, you know, create a series of difficult questions to ask, or they'll um, ask whether they should, you know, what if the organisation didn't exist at all? What if we shut down? What would happen then? And then people are sort of like forced into a a much more acute decision making process. You know what I love about that is, um, you know, I've done that without knowing it up until like you know a couple of years ago when I discovered the pattern for my whole life. Like you know, I'd, I'd have eight days to do a book report in grade school you know, I'd wait till the night before and then I'd be under the gun and I would just make it happen. And I feel as though for me, it puts me in a little bit more of a flow state because I don't have the luxury of overthinking at that time. Even like all parts of me, even my inner critic, everything is like, no, we got to get this done because the ego wants to look good. The inner critic wants you to succeed. Uh, your heart wants to be put into it. You know, your soul is looking to move forward. So it's like all parts of you can be like, all right, right now we agree. Let's move forward. And I love that. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about pirates is their creativity, their ability to make something from nothing and to outmaneuver a much more powerful Navy than they were to be able to really just come up against all odds and succeed. And with your journey, 
and every creative's journey. I imagine there are many times, I know I've been stuck in these periods myself, where you get like writer's block or creativity block, right? You know, I know for a lot of those listening, you know, there's a big entrepreneurial uh, audience that listens to this. I'm sure all of them are wondering, what are the methods you use when you're feeling creative blocks to move through them? You know, is there certain ones you fall on more often than not? Or is it dependent on the situation that gives you what method you use? That's an interesting question. Hmm. It's a funny, when you say creative blocks, I immediately think of writing because that's the sort of predominant creative work that I do, although creating general content. But I completely disagree with this idea that gets passed around writer circles of like, well, you just need to sit down and write a thousand words a day. <laughs> I mean, I understand there's an, there's an element of, of practice that goes, that goes into that. And I think I, I absolutely write every day in terms of journaling, which is just general thoughts, but I really only write if I'm in, if I'm not in writer's block. Yeah. And, so, um, <laughs> and obviously sometimes you have a deadline, so you sort of have to get yourself out of it to a degree. But I, so I do, I do a few things. I, music is huge for me. I personally listen to music to get me out of, to get me into a creative sort of space. It's, it's always just been something that, that works pretty instantaneously. I, you know, I have, I have my playlist that give me goosebumps. So that that's, it's feeling, isn't it? I've got to get the feeling behind what I'm trying to transmit to an audience. Cause if, if I don't have any feeling in what I'm doing, then they're not going to have any feeling in it either. Whether it's speaking, writing, um, anything like that. So I have to feel first. I think movement is very helpful in general. It's what Mark says, always go for a walk. Yes. I walk or swim, that that helps quite a bit, um, just to get my brain thinking in a free-flowing way, I think. And sometimes, you know, I'll just, I'll read, I'll read other things as well. I'll read random pages and bits and bobs from books. Um, I think I'm very much in, uh, have to input to output. So I do have to have some engagement with some other creative material in order to get myself out of a writer's block for sure mm-hmm. whether it's even even if it's just a conversation with somebody else mm-hmm. in fact i'm i'm working on a something at the moment and uh, this afternoon i was feeling a bit flat um partly because i'm just so fed up of working from my flat i hear you <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so i was like quite quite keen to come in here and, and talk to you yes. and um <laughs> Yeah, realizing that I needed to have some input first before I even tried with a blank slate. But I think what I'm learning as well, I'm learning this through the coaching, is um, to intuitively work. Hmm. And this is a real deprogramming process for me and something I, I would encourage anyone that I'm working with to do as well. And it's a very, I don't want to say difficult because I think that would be um, the wrong language, but it's a process and it's it's going to be longer or shorter for different people, depending on where you are. And even when I think I've gotten, I've made some progress, I, I find new layers where I feel in my body a level of guilt or um, around, I should be doing this mm. right now. And that's a programming from having worked in a particular way for a really long time and being told that within these hours I should be doing this or that work has to be hard and all these sorts of things. When actually my best work is done when I'm in that creative state. And yes. Recently, I, I did a, I made myself a promise that the week of the 31st of May starting, I'm going to take a holiday week, but not a holiday in a you know, total relaxed sense. I'm going to allow myself to do no work that I hate 
or not hate that's too strong yeah <laughs> no work that I find dull yes I'm going to only do the things that I that really spark my energy and see what happens as an mm. experiment for a week so I don't think I've ever had a week like that that's amazing, you know, and and that's actually a very similar journey to what I've gone on, specifically with everything you were talking about, like going through a lot of the programming over the last, you know, three years, and especially the last two since I left my job and went fully into highly optimized, that work has to be hard, that it needs to be 10 to 12 hours a day, or like, what am I worth as a human being, right? Like the question, like, I'll catch my inner critic running these programs, and sometimes I find myself just laughing at this point, because I'm like, that is so ridiculous. Like, essentially what my inner critic is telling me is if I don't work 12 hours a day, I'm not worthy of living. Right. And it's like, it's hilarious. And you know, the idea of overwhelm, the idea of all these things that like, you know, that go, go, go lifestyle that really, when you look at it, what it did for me anyway, was it made me feel energized, right? Because cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, all those stress hormones of like having to get so much done work, being hard, all of that they're going to make you feel like energized, but it's really like a burn in the candle from both ends type energy, you know, cause you're going to burn out and you're going to get frustrated, et cetera. And I love what you said about, you know, movement's one of my favorite things too. And, and the, the theme I got was with you, like spontaneity, right? Like, like just breaking the cycles, you know, I myself, and I'll speak for myself, like I get myself stuck into these cycles of like, okay, this is what my week looks like, blah, blah, blah. And I do enjoy a certain amount of structure. But it's also really fun to tear that structure down and just do something completely new. And that's why I've been really getting into the idea of improv, right? Because improv, it like I recently did it at a retreat I went to, and it was like the most fun thing. All my fears about it went out the window. And it was just, it was literally some of the most fun I've had in so long. And I was like, wow, this like completely ignited a new fire in me. And it came from like leaving work for a week, going to a retreat in the mountains, like, you know, uh, not checking my phone, completely being disconnected. That's where that love came from, right? Whereas if I had done the rational or practical thing, I would have ultimately got burned out and, you know, been frustrated, et cetera, all that. You know, it's really interesting too, because where the world is going right now, I find it very interesting that so many people are coming to this conclusion of like, hey, you know what? Like maybe, maybe I want to actually leave some of my weeks up to chance, right? Maybe I want to actually give myself some breathing room, right? And your strategy is amazing, like giving yourself that time to be able to say, you know what, whatever happens, happens, you know, if I decide to write awesome, if I don't great. And really, I feel that's true human nature, right? Human, human beings, we have feelings, right? Um, if you're men, you usually have to pay thousands of dollars to get them back. So if you're a man listening, it's normal not to feel them. <laughs> don't worry, you'll feel them again eventually. But we have these things, feelings, right? You know, if we tune into these feelings, we can actually pull information from them and figure out what it is that our body, our mind, our spirit is yearning for. And, you know, with all of this happening right now, what do you feel is the most valuable lesson we can learn from pirate living, you know, from the pirates of the past and moving forward to ensure we don't make a lot of the same mistakes that they might have made with all of these these changes happening, with people discovering this stuff again and realizing like, you know what, maybe less rules is fun. Maybe it's it's worth not having the expensive car so I can have more freedom, et cetera. What are some of the most valuable lessons we can learn and how can we prevent making the same mistakes? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, I think the valuable lesson, the most valuable lesson is for me in the pirate story is, well, I suppose when you understand what pirates did, you've got to, you've got to just question whether the, estab the establishment or the mainstream is really 
something to follow, I suppose. Um, I think that, that the sort of holding up of the norms that we hold so dear to the light. And I, I say that because I'm very occupied at the moment when I talk to and work with businesses around um, growth, economic growth, because that is pretty much driving most business businesses, even the purpose-driven ones to an extent. And how do you become less addicted to that cycle because it is destroying the planet and is causing you know people to be burnt out at work so it's 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 not good for people or planet and and would it be okay if this this year you didn't grow your business or that it was just the same as last that it that you were on a level but everybody was looked after and there was enough to go around and what would that look like and what would be the opposite to growth and so that so I think there's always going to be the lesson in really examining the norms that we hold so dear that the economic system that we have was invented in a in a in a in a moment you know when it was an entirely different world and the fact that we haven't gone back and properly reorganized it is utter madness and it's almost like a, a blindness that um nobody quite knows the first step to take to do it so you've got your critics but no one's really willing to disentangle it so i think before we get into another mess well, we arguably already are, but you know, the, the biggest Definitely. lesson is hold, hold that up to the light and don't take things that are legal at face value just because they're made legal because the people who made them legal might not have had the right idea. And yeah. it, and that's not to say go completely in the opposite direction and think everything's a conspiracy, but do, you, you know, use your own judgment on these things. Um, yeah, do some research. And I think, yeah, I, I th- and I think the the, what, the second part of the question was, um, what would they do differently? Yeah, I was thinking about this because this comes again comes up a lot in in our community. That I think the problem with pirates maybe was that they were so out and out pirate. You know, it was your pirate. It was binary. You're pirate or you were not, and it was made binary by the system. You were on the wrong side of the law or you were on the right side of the law. And I notice this a lot when people self-identify as pirate in our, in particular, workspaces here. That can be received badly. What I really want is for people who've understood pirates and the mentality and the mindset that and how empowering it is, and and that it really it's better for organisations because it means people taking responsibility and owning their own action more that's that that is going to be a good thing so i think the lesson is to build a bridge a a bigger bridge between the current paradigm and the new one we're trying to move people towards and that's often a translation exercise and that's kind of how i see my role i know that sometimes certain ideas about pirates won't land and i would want to try to offer the messages in a way that people really hear them rather than always saying well, Sam, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Just <laughs> <laughs> so I checked, someone did call me out on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sam, we used to always hold up the big old slogan, pirates fuck shit up. In, and I think people did like it, but yeah. they definitely did. I love listen. that. <laughs> I'm that yeah. audience for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you guys, you guys yeah. definitely are. Guilty as but, charged. Um, <laughs> I know that certain people wouldn't go, we need to temper it slightly. I don't want to temper it so much that you you dilute the message. That's not it. Hmm. It's just a case of if it doesn't land at all, and this is a really big discussion topic around activism, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. you've got to speak the truth, but if it, if no one hears it, if they, if people shrink in fear at the, at the thought of it, you're not achieving anything either. So 
I'm very conscious of of how to do that and and to help think about. And when you said earlier, I think this is a really key point. You said um, allowing the community to speak from the heart, and that's what we've started to create. And that was really important to me. If I'm to how to build that bridge, uh, something I learned really really early on from listening to people stand up and talk about why they cared about being more pirate. When so we had, we had some early events, and I'd obviously given them enough permission or the community had given them enough permission to be vulnerable enough to tell their truth. Um, even if the first bit was maybe, I don't know, felt less acceptable. And in doing that, people responded to them properly in taking away some of the formality that I see in, you know, in telling a story in a professional setting, people really sat up and listened. And that's when the change started to happen. So I think that that's a, a way you can, you can build a bridge because you're not saying I think everybody should do this I'm telling you what's true for me what's been my story and that can come you can come across quite forcefully in that respect because it's your story mm-hmm. yeah that's that's definitely one way I would say that we should try to evolve the concept of pirates um yeah. I, I think I've probably said this before that I don't really buy the whole like Silicon Valley adoption of piracy around the like it's not yeah. my you know, and a lot of the times, uh, I'm glad you brought that up too, because I think a lot of people are, or I imagine a lot of people are thinking they're pirates, but they're really not being inclusive. They're not, they're not including a lot of the original things that made pirates pirates, right? Like open-minded thinking, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of like same, same, but different type things. But I do think one of the things that's so important you know, I imagine for me anyway, made me resent the system so much as they're telling you, do it this way. This is the only way, right? So how do we change that tune? We make sure that when we're, you know, saying our journeys, we say, hey, by the way, this is just subjective. This is what happened for me. Try it out. Do your own research. See what happens for you, right? I'm just here to make you curious, you know, and to show you there is another way. If that works for you, if you want the other way, awesome, go have fun. We can still go have a beer. We can still smoke a joint, do whatever you want to do, you know, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to agree on everything, you know, uh, you can be your own sovereign being. I can be my own sovereign being and we can still get along. And that I feel is so important and imperative of the modern day world because there is so much hate. Really, actually, the way I see it is there's like half the hate that they tell us there is, and then the media portrays it being twice as bad, which then creates this fake, like, oh, we all hate each other, but no one really knows why type thing going on. You know, that definitely is what happens in America. I imagine it happens uh, in London, too. Like, we're just there. It's just the media is just instigating these things. And and I think that's another reason why it's so important to use the tools we have to go in. We're to check in with our heart and see, like, what feels right here? You know, does this feel right to me? Because your intuition will always know, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, but the mind, the mind will create thoughts, stories, uh, disempowering beliefs, language. So the mind... You know, although it is working for your best interest, it's it's almost like it's almost like a dog, right? Where a lot of dogs they think you're protecting you by barking at the mailman, but really they're just they're not, you know. And so they're doing the best. It, it, the mind is doing the best of the information it has available, but it's just it's not meant to be the driver in the car. It's meant to be the passenger. And mm-hmm. I feel for so many, including myself, I never I quote unquote did not learn that until later on in my life. You know, and now that I do know that it makes it much easier to know when I'm seeing it in other people, like I'm seeing the establishment, I'm seeing it in all these different places. 
you know, it's just been such a great opportunity to have my way of thinking challenged from the people and places and things that I've come into contact with who have challenged it and allowed me to grow into the person I am today. And so, you know, I'm curious with everything going on right now that we've been talking about, where do you see the pirate movement moving in 2021 and beyond? Do you see it, you know, catching wind? Uh, what are your you know, hopes for it, et cetera? Where do you see it going? Yeah, well, as I kind of probably alluded to earlier, I don't, in, in doing this whole thing, um, I let go of a lot of what I felt were traditional success metrics probably because it didn't really make me happy. You know, I always wanted to be an author and I wrote a book and published it. And and it didn't, that wasn't the thing that really <laughs> was that was all that satisfying. It was all the stories and syn- like, so we talked about synchronicities earlier, like things that happened that were felt kind of magical along the way that were the really good stuff. So I thought, well, that's not really what I'm aiming for. Then I sort of disassociated a little bit with the idea that like we grow the movement to a big thing. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously... I'm keen for it to grow in the sense of if it, if it's valuable to people. So there is a sense of, of wanting to to sort of spread the message in different ways. Hence, we've sort of just well, we started a podcast to, to create a different forum. There's in terms of where it's going. There's certain things that I want to do with it, and there's certain things that I hope that the crew do with it. I am consistently trying to support a, a sort of stealth ish pirate rebellion <laughs> across health and social care here and we've got some really amazing people in the network who are doing some great stuff because it's really needed uh, you're probably aware of, of some of the uh, challenges we have with healthcare. i mean we have an amazing free health service but um it's there, there are problems yeah. and um a lot of that is it's just the systemic ways that we work so there are way and i've Again, we, we interviewed someone on our podcast last week who are doing some incredible stuff on this. So I, I want to be able to show and scale those kinds of projects. And, and if there's what, yeah, so using having them on the podcast is one way for me to say, like, this can be done. Mm. And people are doing it and get behind it. So there's kind of, yeah, mutinies across sectors that I want to support. Yeah. But in terms of the, cent- the, you know, the core of Be More Pirate, I would like to do, I'm going to create an, a sort of online learning resource because sort of what we said earlier about, this stuff has to be practiced. It's not something you can do. I mean, you can read a book and sort of adopt it, but quite often the people who really take to be more pirate as a book ha- have already somewhat been living the ideals <laughs> or yes. see themselves in it. Yeah, that was my case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I thought I thought it was much. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but if you're like right, maybe a bit bit further, maybe want to move further along, like, then there needs to be some some learning. Um, practices that you can you can do and I'd like to turn that into something like a residential program at some point I'd really like to have a be more pirate week-long or weekend experience Mm. where I use some of the amazing people in the network to share some workshops and what it would be about would be you know building the future world skills that we need so there'd be some some work on pirate mindset of course but I'd also think about things like how to build solar panels and non-violent, using non-violent language uh, or conflict resolution, um, touching upon all the things that I don't think get taught in schools and workplaces that are really essential skill building to create like a, a better society. So I've got yeah a few ideas floating around, but that probably won't be till 2022, realistically. Um, 
<laughs> so we'll we're already halfway again. there <laughs> pretty yeah, much yeah no but maybe so, like a year, year's time yeah. that that could be really great i've got a couple of people who've gone yeah we've got venues so i think it could happen at least in a pilot and i've got to get not hung up on making it perfect just <laughs> yes. letting people yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that perfectionism thing it's it's always you know binary language acknowledged and accepted it's always a voice in my head that i can hear you know, it just depends on like, for me, it comes down to, did I do the things today to allow that voice to be mitigated enough for the other voices to be louder? You know, I've been getting very good because the the other side of that is like, well, if I choose to not, you know, work out that day or do meditation or breath work or et cetera, any of these things that allow my mind to come, I just got to listen to that annoying pesky voice all day. And man, that's got to be like some type of Guantanamo Bay punishment. It's just your inner critic on like a loudspeaker just all day at you. Uh, uh, you know, I've heard we have 70,000 thoughts a day and it, it sounds legit. You know, I, I haven't fact checked it, but uh, of which 70% are negative. I just see that as a population that has not figured out how to manage their inner critic, you know, with all this perfectionism and people pleasing stuff. And I imagine we all struggle with it in some way, shape or form. I know I have and most of my clients, you know, deal with uh, either one of those things or imposter syndrome. It's a uh, Always interesting moving through that. But if there's anyone that can do it, it's you considering your track record of being more pirate and uh, going out there and crushing it and in the, the words of uh, Sam, fucking shit up, you know? So <laughs> I'm really, I'm really committed to it. I think that's the key thing. I'm really, yeah. because I know that, as you said earlier, the other side is freedom. Yes. Yes. It's worth, it's worth it. Yeah. Um, and also, if you disassociate somewhat from criticism, you kind of also dis- disassociate from praise too much. I think that's been something that's happened to me. I, I'm very happy and, and appreciative when people say that they love female pirate or any of the work that we're doing. But I also don't take it too much to mean I'm amazing and like, and that's the thing. <laughs> that's not the thing that validates my day. Yeah. I validate my day with what I decide to do every day. Yes. And so then sort of criticism starts to roll off your back a little bit as well. And whilst I try and take on board constructive stuff, obviously, yeah. you recognize that it is also just someone's opinion at, at, at the point in time that they're at. And who knows what's feeling that? Absolutely. It was like you were talking about earlier, like what was the process it took to get to them giving you that opinion, you know, of, of you, you know, for them. And it's, it's a catch 22, you know, because even if you do find out, it's not really going to help it, you know, because if it's triggering something in you, the way that I always see it, you know, when I get something triggered in me, it's like, you know, Paul check always says, you know, if you point one finger, there are three pointing back, you know, and it's like, okay, so what is in me that I'm feeling that maybe I'm not aware of, maybe I am aware of that, uh, is allowing me to get triggered over this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think like we were talking about earlier, one of the main challenges right now is allowing people to realize like, no, the trigger is not where it ends, you know? Like, you get triggered and then you go on the offense like, oh, you triggered me. It's like, no, that's a gift. Keep going. You're halfway there. You know, figure it out what it is. It'll probably go back to something with mother and father. And when you remove that, you'll have so much more freedom in your life, you know, and you won't care if someone says something, you know, X, Y, Z about you because you'll know who you are, you know, and uh, if you are that thing, you either will move through it or you'll own it. You know, if it's something that, you know, you're not necessarily like upset with. And uh, Mm. I think that's one of the biggest lessons that, you know, I learned from Be More Pirate is just to really know yourself and accept yourself and be able to, you know, know that in the, in your heart of hearts and allow the potential opinions or insults or criticisms of others that are at a different part in their journey, just roll up and off of you, you know, uh, so long as you go in and go on the hero's journey inward, 
you know, in my, in, in my experience, I've been able to traverse a lot of that. And now when people call me crazy or wild, I'm like, Oh, thank you. You know, it's a huge compliment. So <laughs> yeah, I think whatever, I think whatever comes up, whatever you do, just own it. Yes. Like that's, that's all I can, yes. that's all I can do. I'm like, that was not a good talk. Own it. <laughs> that was a good one. Own it. Like, yes. I go, you know, I've just realized like I, I go through iterations, like my, my mood changes. Like sometimes I, I've had a good week. Sometimes I've had a bad week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some days I nail it. Sometimes, some days I love how I look. Some days I hate it to an extent anyway. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm like, also I'm going to change. Like I'll probably look back in two years and be like, Oh God, like what was I saying? <laughs> and, and to not get too hung up on, on that, that the fixedness of things. Um, uh, I, yeah, that's, that's been a real, pirate sort of part of the pirate mindset that's yeah, um, upgrade <laughs> yeah yeah an upgrade exactly. <laughs> that's awesome alex you know this has been so much fun getting the journey with you and talk pirates with you where can i send people to connect with you uh purchase the book learn from you etc i think pretty much everything is on our website that Perfect. you could find out um you've got like there's various forms there's my contact details there's like a bookstore where you can buy both of our books or any other pirate books you want to buy or books about rebellion. (laughs) I know I also run a small bookshop from my flat. Um, Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And there's a whole page on um, the, the community as well. Um, But we're also on Instagram and Twitter. um, Should you want to be more, more on social media? So yeah. That's awesome. And you know, I have one more question for you if you're up for it. Mm. All right. That question is, <laughs> if someone listening could only make one change to highly optimize their life, what would Alex Barker suggest that change be? Mm-hmm. Whatever you're thinking about that feels like a risk, a bit of a risk, take it. Mm-hmm. That would be, and I can't define what that is for you. That's the key thing about this. There's never a formula that I can give you because it has to come from inside. But in my experience... The idea of taking a small risk, a small bold action or whatever it is you define it as, it's not that the outcome will necessarily be amazing. It's what happens to you in the process of taking the decision. Because what you're really looking for is some kind of what what I think we are always hoping for is, is growth. And in doing that, you do that. So it doesn't, in a sense, matter what you decide to do, but find something that feels a bit risky and take it. Um and see what see what happens i love that guys you know like i said when i first read be more pirate it changed my life and i was serious that you know i was going through a very transformational time in my life and what the book did was allow me to see that the things i had been feeling deep within me that challenged the status quo of society were not in fact silly or crazy but actually had roots in the ways human beings were living their lives with freedom as their main priority back even hundreds of years ago Alex is an absolutely phenomenal warrior of the New Age movement designed to shake things up and challenge outdated beliefs in order to bring in a new, more harmonious way of living inspired by the generations before us. And to get her on the show was truly an honor beyond words. If you are currently feeling as though you could use some of your life shaken up a bit, then take this moment right now to purchase the book, read it thoroughly, and reclaim your sovereignty. Also, if you enjoyed the show, I would be so grateful if you could share it with those you love and leave reviews on iTunes as they help me in reaching as many people looking to become highly optimized as possible, to which I am eternally grateful for. 
Alex, thank you so much again for stopping by to share your journey, educate, and inspire all of us. And until next time, journey well, be well. Much love over to you. Namaste. What is up, everybody? I hope you are all enjoying the show, and I wanted to stop by real quick and share a little bit about our latest podcast sponsor, Freedom Builders. Now, Freedom Builders are a team of graphic designers, website creators, videographers, social media marketing experts, and coaches that build out your custom online business from A to Z. This is a done-for-you service, which means they do the work for you while you get to put your focus back on what you love most, which is coaching your clients and bringing in sales. Now, as a former online fitness coach, Mike knows where your struggle points are and exactly how to help you overcome them. This is why he created Freedom Builders, so that you can scale your business while protecting your time and your energy. Now, you guys know that delegation is a business superpower, and you can activate this superpower today by scheduling a complimentary call with Mike at freedombuilders with a z on the end.com so you can start building the freedom that allows you to take your business to the next level. Alex and I recently connected with Freedom Builders for our Connect with Cannabis build out and we could not have been happier with the results. With Mike and his team, they were able to go through an outline and create a personalized program for our experience, develop our brand identity, build and design a custom branded webpage, professionally edit our program video content, custom design all of our slide presentations, automate our email marketing sequences, create a seamless payment system for our offer, design unique infographics for our social media content, and guide us through our proven launch blueprint to generate organic leads through our social media. So if you're a coach, facilitator, or healer listening to this ad right now, and you are looking to put freedom back into your life, once again, go to freedombuilders, with a Z on the end, .com, and book your complimentary call today. I hope you all enjoy the rest of the show, and I'm wishing you the best day ever.